crisis, scandal, and politics in Argentina. Who gets hurt and who benefits? I'm Richard Miles, host of 35 West, and my returning guest today is Ben Gadan, a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center. Welcome back. Thanks so much. So this must be Wilson Center week at CSIS because just yesterday I had Duncan uh, Wood on the show to talk about Mexico. And today, August 16th, we're talking about Argentina. And I throw in the date because every day the headlines in Argentina bring new bombshells. So I just want to absolve you, Ben, of any incorrect okay. predictions that you, you're proven wrong in the next 72 hours or so. Guaranteed. Um, but let's start, I think, by going back to November 2015 when Mauricio Macri was elected uh, president to, I think, very high hopes. Um, country had gone through, you know, about 12 dramatic years with the Kirchners, first Nestor, then Christina. Um, had essentially been isolated from international capital markets. Uh, we had a very populous government, didn't care too much for the rule of law. Um, so Macri is elected and is supposed to change all that. And so let's, if you could recap for the listeners, sort of what has he done um, in your view that's been a success? What has he accomplished in the last two and a half years? And what has he failed to do? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Thanks again for the invitation. I've been really enjoying the podcast. I think the the framing is correct in terms of international capital markets and investors and the the market-friendly international community, which did view the election with great optimism. Um, I think actually in Argentina, there was a lot of skepticism that this president would have any success at all. In fact, most of the conversation at the time in late 2015 was governability. And would you actually be able to govern with a relatively new party that mostly had a presence in the capital city with a more or less novice politician, former business person, who now has to live in a Peronist world? And so actually at the time, the question was, will he last? Will he finish his term? So I think the when we look at the early period of this government, which has now been forgotten amidst all the drama and ups and downs and turbulence in Argentina, he excelled and exceeded expectations, I'd say, in his first year. Let's, uh, if, if we could explain, I guess, also for this, for the non-Argentine um, experts, policy experts, talk a little bit about Peronism and how the fact that Peronism over time has sort of been this kind of... Uh, Argentina has sort of become, in, in essence, a one-party state in that there you have different flavors of Peronism. Um, but if, you, you know, if you're not a member, it's really hard to, to make do. And the fact that Macri not being a Peronist, um, you know, the political environment for him was for the tough from the get-go. So if you could just talk about sort of the range of, of sort of you, you have the non-Kirchner Peronists and you have other flavors of Peronism. Talk a little bit about that for me. Yeah, I mean, I think the, when we get into the discussion of the 2019 election, I think the divisions within Peronism are, are paramount. Um, they were also paramount in getting Mauricio Macri elected, which was a surprise victory himself because of the divisions within Peronism. I think I'll, I'll back to what I was discussing about the difficult political climate for Mauricio Macri as a third party candidate was the, the sort of national network and corporatism of Peronism, and that's what I think was most relevant to the challenges Mauricio Macri faced, which is to say a country utterly dominated by this one political movement. Now, maybe it's heterodox in its ideologies and has a lot of divisions internally, but it's utterly dominant, particularly in, in rural provinces, and, and has this incredible nationwide network and links to unions that the radical party tried to compete for, for decades, and then it nearly lost all support leading up to this election, and now you have a third party that has emerged in this government be a most let's change coalition that's led by President Mauricio Macri. So I think what was significant was that he was coming into a country where he needed to govern without any presence, essentially, nationally. Um, and that is why I think people came in and said, OK, this guy, again, not only will he not achieve with a minority in both houses of Congress and absolutely no presence nationally, but he won't even survive. 
right? He'll be run out of the Casa Rosada, the presidential palace, and flee like other non-Peronist predecessors have. Uh, and there's some, and you alluded to this, story, there's some interesting geographical differences in terms of power distribution, right? You have the city of Buenos Aires, you have the province of Buenos Aires, and then you've got sort of other power centers within the country. How much of that is coming into play in terms of either support or opposition to Macri? Unfortunately for the government, even as it's expanded its support and become more of a national party, particularly with an excellent result in the October midterm elections of last year, it still remains in the minority in both houses of Congress. And so its accomplishments, which we can get into early in his term, I think were particularly notable because of that lack of, of congressional majorities. He has expanded, though, his support base in this coalition with this traditional historic radical party in the big provinces, the major urban areas. That includes Cordoba. That includes Santa Fe. In these places now, and frankly, all the big population centers, surprisingly, including the province of Buenos Aires, they're now governed by this coalition, this Cambiemos coalition. In the midterm elections, all I think was the four or five major population centers ended up in the government's hands. But again, like the United States, this is a country on the, it's, it's based on the U.S. system. So in the Senate, you have equal representation of all provinces. And so the Senate um, structurally will be dominated by Peronists for the foreseeable future. And the lower house, it was just too big a hole to dig out of in this at this pace. And so again, despite early popularity in his term, and we can talk about why that has shifted dramatically of late, um, he still ended up in the minority, which is not the place you want to be when you face the challenges that he inherited economically. Okay, so enough about context. Let's talk about the current scandal or sort of set of scandals in Argentina. And it's being compared by a lot of people to the car wash scandal in Brazil, the giant corruption scandal there, the sort of Odebrecht construction, et cetera. Um, so briefly, who, who has done what to whom, and is it as big a deal as it is in... So the fact of the scandal, I think, has surprised no one. The, the Kirchners, Nestor Kirchner and his former first lady and wife and successor, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, were widely thought to be running a criminal enterprise in the Casa Rosada for the decade that they governed. Um, there had been evidence that had emerged in particularly Argentine colorful ways. There was a former senior official caught throwing bags of cash over the wall of a monastery um, this is post-government. This is like a even, bad telenovela here. <laughs> Indeed, or a good one, I think. <laughs> it's quite one, entertaining okay. for those those who watch. Uh, you had the vice president who was continually on trial while in government and has recently been in prison and convicted. This was Christina Fernandez de Kirchner's vice president. So again, nothing shocking about the fact that corruption occurred. What was shocking here, I think, was the level and color of the evidence that has been presented, which was a chauffeur for a senior official in the government for 10 years doggedly noted every bribe that he helped deliver. The addressee, including the, the presidential residence in Olivos, the, the payer of the bribe, it's touching economic elites, which is unheard of in Argentina, as well as political elites from the last government, which is not unheard of. Uh, gosh, you know, I, when I was stationed in Buenos Aires, I lived right down the block from Los Olivos. If I'd known just to stand at the right corner at the right time, you know, but... Uh, all right. So I guess this is staggering in that um, given that the uh, the characters sort of knew that they're under suspicion um, or that there's rumors that there would – it just seems a really careless way to go about corruption. Um, and of course, uh, Julio De Vido, I know, has also been implicated and involved. Um, what is What has been the reaction uh, apart from sort of, OK, we knew this. What has been the reaction on the street in terms of, um, I guess – Christina Kirchner's chances in the 2019 elections. And then beyond that, um, are people thinking this is just a, a Kirchner 
Peronista problem, or do they think this is a bigger indictment of the entire political? Um, I, I agree. I think there was some carelessness given the scale of the bribery operation. The allegations here stem from at least $50 million in bribes that have been documented, maybe as much as $160 million. And again, deliveries to the presidential residence and other properties owned by the Kirchner family. I don't think they expected their chauffeur to be noting all of this bribery and then eventually La Nación, a leading newspaper in Argentina, to get their hands on a, a photocopy of these diaries, these cuadernos, these notebooks. So in that sense, I think they couldn't have planned for that eventuality. Christina has the benefit of parliamentary immunity for now as a sitting senator. She ran in the October midterms and and succeeded. So for now, she is immune from prosecution. We'll see if the Senate decides to strip her of that immunity. Typically, they don't do that. And many have said within her party, even more traditional Peronists who don't um, find her leftist brand of Peronism particularly appealing, nor her alleged corruption, have said that you should at least have a conviction of a former president before you strip them of immunity because they can be tried um, rather than simply allegations. That said, the lower house did strip Devido, who you mentioned, uh, the so-called super minister under Christina. Um, who was in prison later for a different set of similar corruption allegations. So it's not unheard of. In terms of the political implications, we'll see. The Christina, the sort of cliche about Christina, and I think it's proved true, is that she has this high floor and low ceiling in terms of support, which is another way of saying she has diehard supporters who cannot be shaken. And that number is significant. It's maybe a third of the population that still says they'll stick with her forever, either um, criticizing the allegations as politically motivated prosecutions or ignoring them entirely and deciding that she's the one who provided the social services they needed. She addressed poverty. She vastly expanded the the payroll of the federal government in ways that benefited the working class in Argentina. And for that, I think she, she has won their loyalty and, and shockingly retains it. Um, you're explaining to me about sort of the, the chauffeur and the and the notebook and everything it reminds me of a great movie from the 80s, Body Heat. And there's a line in there, William Hurt uh, says to Mickey O'Rourke, he says, in every, every crime, there are 100 ways to screw up. And if you're a genius, you'll think of 50 of them and you ain't no genius. So <laughs> I'm beginning to think here that, that Christine is not a genius. Um, you were quoted recently saying that um, anything that tarnishes the Kirchners is a gift to mockery. So how at this particular moment is this a gift to mockery? Two ways. Firstly, it's a distraction from a very, very difficult economic moment. The inheritance of the Kirchners was not simply a system of democratic institutions that had continually eroded, as you referenced earlier during that 12 years of Kirchner rule, but also an economy in wreckage. Right? It was an economy in shambles, including low foreign exchange, sky-high inflation, entering into a recessionary period, um, and massive deficits that the government has been trying to address. In that situation, the government has not really succeeded frankly, much at all. Recently, it took on a $50 billion bailout from the IMF, which was very unpopular in Argentina. All of that is to say the government doesn't want to talk about the economy, and it would much rather have Argentines talking about corruption under the Kirchner. So that's reason one. Reason two is is that she still remains a likely presidential opponent and probably the most formidable, notwithstanding these allegations and the economic wreckage of her administration. In that sense, who wouldn't want their opponent tarred by yet another corruption scandal? Now, the how it plays out in terms of the election is more complex because he wants her tarred just enough, but likely not in jail, which risks the Peronist movement, which, as we've said, has been highly fractured lately, uniting in a candidate that could 
challenged Mauricio Macri significantly in the 2019 election. So better to have a damaged Christina still on the ballot rather than someone much better than Christina who's clean. That's right. Or someone who could unify the entire opposition against the government. Now, that could seem mere sort of political discussion and and something that's useful for pundits to analyze. Unfortunately, Argentina really struggles with an independent judiciary and has struggled with the rule of law. You mentioned that the car wash investigation in Brazil that has relied upon much more professional prosecutors and much more independent judges. Lacking that in Argentina, there's always the suspicion that it isn't merely passive wishing from the government, Mauricio Macri, that Cristina is tarred but not tarnished too much, that she ends up not a viable candidate. And so when Cristina tells her supporters and others, well, I think there's some political motivation to how these cases are handled, including the pace of the prosecutions and investigations. It's hard even for honest observers and objective observers to dismiss that out of hand. Um, there, there's also been some reluctance, uh, I've, I've read, to carry this investigation too far and too wide um, because, it, you know, from what I understand, uh, the, the bribes or, or do we know what were the bribes for? Were, were they and who were they from? Um, it, it seems like most of them were from business sector to the uh, the Kirchners to do certain things, but do we know what things? Were they were they to get out of taxes? Were they to get contracts, et cetera? And then I guess the fear, and tell me if I'm, I'm right here, is that uh, if you uncover this too much, you're going to find bribes went to um, Macri's coalition or Macri's allies. And so therefore, you want to investigate just not too much. Is that more or less right? I haven't heard that that's the major concern. I mean, I think there's no doubt that the current government has connections with the economic elites, as any political elite would in Argentina. And here, these were your sort of traditional run-of-the-mill types of bribes for public works contracts. So sort of a play-to-play system. What was notable, again, beyond the volume of evidence that has apparently emerged was the scale of the bribes and how blatantly they were delivered to to high-level figures, including the presidential couple themselves. I don't see it... as a fear of the government being implicated, although that's always possible in an environment that's this corrupt and with this level of impunity and lack of transparency. I think the bigger concern is the earlier issue, which is wanting your opponent tarnished, but wanting your opponent viable to continue to divide the, the political opposition. Now, the Odebrecht scandal, I think, is similar because Argentina is one of the few places, it's actually Venezuela and Argentina and all of Latin America, that have basically not lifted a finger to prosecute and investigate local players in the Odebrecht scandal. The DOJ has referenced more than $30 million in bribes the company admitted to paying out to officials in Argentina. And for a variety of reasons that I and others have written about, you've had almost no movement. There again, people raise the question, is it because the government is fearing that it and its allies might be implicated? It's possible. I think in that case, you know, all those bribes, alleged bribes, would have been paid out to the Kirchners. So I think that would be yet another um, corruption scandal that, that the Peronists would have to own up to. Um, So why it's not advancing, I think it's another bad sign about the rule of law and the criminal justice system in Argentina. We have presidential elections uh, next year. When are they? November 2019? That's right. Okay. So uh, that means uh, in the Argentine political system, when does sort of the window close, I guess, for for mockery in terms of what policy wins does he need to put on the table between now and the election that is really going to turn this around for him? I mean, is there a certain economic growth target or unemployment rate or, you know, what does he have to do in order to to be in a much better position uh, when Argentines go to the polls next year. 
Unfortunately for supporters of the government, his position is awful and, and worsening. I think, I mean, we talked earlier about Mockery exceeding expectations. We didn't get into any detail, but I can just very briefly say that he came in and he settled this dispute with these holdout bondholders, which enabled him to, to reaccess capital markets. He was able, despite the opposition in Congress, to lower export taxes that had made it very difficult for farmers um, to bring in the capital that the country needs, tax reform, pension reform. So I think a lot of dramatic steps that he took. He liberalized capital markets. He became this Davos celebrity. He has increased, though not fast enough, foreign investment. So I think he's going to run probably in his accomplishments from his first six months in office, which were notable and frankly historic. Um, And I think that's not an exaggeration. And I'd say that even if he wasn't overcoming these incredible structural burdens that he faced. That said, people are not going to vote based on what occurred more than you know three, four years ago, and they're also not going to forget what's going on in the economy today. I think there is a lot of you know optimism right now among his supporters that somehow the recent abortion debate that took place in Argentina, this corruption scandal with the notebooks, are adequate to permanently change the conversation away from the economy. It just that's never happened in any democratic political system anywhere, I think, in history, where there's anything you know, maybe save a natural disaster that can, you know, or war uh, that can truly divert attention from such a severe economic crisis that, that Argentina is going through. Uh, you don't get a $50 billion bailout from the IMF unless things are, are quite severe. And going to the IMF in, in and of itself was politically uh, sensitive because IMF, you know, is not exactly a popular institution in Argentina. It's deeply loathed in Argentina across the political spectrum. And that's unfortunate because for Macri, understandably, he sees that as a big diplomatic victory, right? He's been able to get this massive bailout. He was able to get the Europeans and the United States on board. And this is Argentina, where you might have expected the national community to say, no, we uh, we think that you need to, to deal with your own problems. We don't trust you to handle this well. We've seen this movie before. In fact, he was able to relatively quickly negotiate this bailout. That said, he ran, frankly, other than he ran on counter-corruption, and so the the Christina scandal, I think, helps. Um, He ran on rule of law, and he's been trying to address security, and those policies have been popular. But he ran on zero poverty. Right. This is a country we think of it as, as pretty wealth with lovely architecture in the capital city and a European quality of life for many in the capital. This is a country with a third of its population living in poverty, massive slums near wealthy neighborhoods. And poverty had declined slightly, but is probably increasing again based on a massive peso devaluation and extraordinary inflation that he's simply not been able to, to address. Given those very real factors and, and inflation is something people feel, right? This isn't a vague economic indicator like economic growth. It's food, frankly, prices that are leading the inflationary phenomenon in Argentina. So in my view, and it's unfortunate, again, for, for supporters of the government and supporters for this liberalization and, and economic opening, people are going to be thinking about the economy over the next year as he runs. So he, he faces a tough road ahead of him. Um, I meant to add to his list of early accomplishments, he helped bring the largest crowd ever to CSIS when we had him here. I think we had like... <laughs> You know, 700 people spilling out into the streets. So, and if CSIS were voting, I think he would <laughs> win right. in a landslide. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So let, let's let's back up a little bit and, and sort of look at the big picture again. And in terms of sort of the Argentine uh, sort of post dictatorship uh, history. So you know, we're looking from you know whatever late uh, uh, 80s, I guess, um, to now. Uh, there seems to be this pattern <laughs> of a president comes along, is elected, and a few years later, and as we were discussing earlier, usually it's about a decade, right? But now we're talking about a shorter cycle in which they go from hero to zero, 
and and they they are elected, and then a few years later, they're they're looking for their rescue helicopter from the Casa Rosada. Do are we ever going to reach a point at which Argentina moves into sort of the normal category in terms of politics? I think it's the wish of of every Argentine and and certainly every foreign investor and anyone who who wishes Argentina well, myself included. Normalcy has always been, I think, far out of reach for Argentina. And it's it's hard to understand why without digging deeply into the odd political culture there. Because again, you have a country with extraordinary natural resources, highly educated population, you know, a geography that although remote geopolitically um, offers a lot of advantages and yet it's been unable to recapture its former economic glory of being one of the you know top five wealthiest countries in the world. Um, and then sort of post-Great Depression, every economic and political experiment and military experiment have failed and failed dramatically. And again, you know, let's hope they're not on another expedited cycle here of, of growth and then crash. As every, any economist will tell you, what you want to do to develop and become a Singapore or South Korea is steady growth over a long period of time and not these incredible you know, collapses and then quickly rising economic activity. I think if you look back in this post-dictatorship era, I mean, I think the first government of Alphonsine will historically get a lot of credit for having solidified a democratic transition. But after that, yes, it's been this phenomenon over and over again. Menem, who was a hero, who tried liberalization in ways that are somewhat similar to what's going on now, though with important caveats, and then who utterly collapsed. Um, and ended in the 2001 you know, crisis under the, the next administration. You had the Kirchners who benefited from this so-called commodity super cycle, this extraordinarily positive external environment. And then, as we know, that resulted ultimately in, again, economic trauma um, and real political chaos. That brought in our current government, which had a difficult recessionary first year. And then, but still, I think, you know, a lot of optimism as he demonstrated that he could govern. And I think the international community embraced him and a lot of Argentines. You know, Latin America is not common for politicians these days to be in the double digits in terms of their approval ratings. And yet he kept an approval rating near 50 percent for more than a year, despite basically austerity policies that he was carrying out. And I think it was the extraordinary optimism that maybe things could turn around structurally and permanently, as well as just exhaustion with Christina and relief that she was no longer governing. And now I think his approval rating is, is closer to the high 30s. And again, it, it's the economy. And overcoming that, I think, will be difficult, even as he promises the storm has passed, which is repeatedly what he promises, that some pain is necessary. And he reminds everyone, I think correctly, about the economic disaster that was put on his agenda when he took office. That said, not to be repetitive, but it's basic politics. I mean, people are going to vote based on the family's economic conditions and and their optimism or pessimism about where the country's economy is headed. You know, another thing that's always fascinated me about Argentine political culture is that Argentines, by and large, are are pretty self-aware. It's it's not like they're denying sort of these root causes and root problems. Uh, There is a sort of a tendency to blame outsiders a lot of times for this, which IMF for the United States. But it's not like they're they're saying, well, we we don't have any problems to fix. It's just that for some reason— um, we never get to a point for more than, say, 10 years in which you have sort of reasonable policies, uh, reasonable leaders uh, who aren't throwing bags of cash over monetary walls. And then we, we revert back to, uh, you know, just kind of chaos. 
It's true. Look, there are some negative external factors that they actually could point to. I mean, they came in as a pro-trade agenda in a time of global protectionism. They came in and Brazil, their major trading partner in the Mercosur Customs Union, has had this political and economic collapse over the last few years. So, uh, you know, Commodity prices have not been anywhere near they were for the Nestor Kirchner years. So I think actually there have been some some headwinds that they face. But you're right. I think they take responsibility. I, I would point to two major structural problems in Argentina. One is weak democratic institutions that permit a lack of transparency, that don't control corruption, that don't give the business community in Argentina and foreign investors the kind of predictability that Argentina needs to offer and the kind of rule of law assurances to bring in the kind of investment that could really transform that economy. Part of it are bad policy decisions. Even this government with its economic opening, they were not a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They are still the most closed economy on earth, and they've moved quite slowly to open the economy. And most of Argentina's business class is not interested in facing foreign competition. So part of it are policy disputes. I said two. I'll make. I'll give you three. Um, and then the third is they just don't have fundamental consensus in that country over the direction. And so that's part of the lack of predictability is not simply the fact that the institutions don't function the way they should and that you're not sure how the judicial system would, would process a dispute. But the fundamental agreement about whether this is an open economy or protected economy is it a statist economy? Is it one where markets are permitted to function? Are we friends with Venezuela and Iran and Russia? Are we going to Davos? I mean, I think these things change so dramatically. And one thing that's very frustrating for Mauricio Macri is he cannot convince the international community that they're on a new path because they've had such fluctuations. So he comes in and says, my election was historic. Believe me, we're on a new path. We're going to try to join the OECD. We're going to lock in these reforms. We're going to have massive and dramatic legislation. Believe me and join me. And everyone says, let me wait till the midterms. The midterms come. He performs extraordinarily well, exceeds expectations. And everyone says, you know what? Let's wait for the next election. Are you sure you're going to win? Christina's still around. And I think he says, OK, well, I just can't convince you. And without convincing you, this is not just a public relations problem. I really won't get the international foreign investment that I need to enable a slower process of reducing the deficit and to really produce the jobs and decrease poverty in a way that convinces Argentines themselves that this is the correct economic model. Uh, one final question, Ben. Uh, relationship with the Trump administration. It seems to me that uh, Macri's had fairly good relationship with President Trump. Uh, bilateral relationship at, at the sort of White House, uh, Costa Rosada level, are they good? Are they functioning? They are. So I was at the White House handling Argentina issues, the National Security Council, when we the relationship was reborn under the last administration after Mauricio Macri was elected. There was this historic visit to Argentina by President Barack Obama. The Argentines have clearly wanted to preserve the same level of trust and, and cooperation. And I think they've succeeded in that. President Trump had Mauricio Macri as his second Latin American head of state to visit at the Oval Office. The vice president, the former secretary of state have all visited Argentina because it's hosting the G20 this year. It's had the treasury secretary multiple times in Argentina, as well as other members of Trump's cabinet. I think on most levels, including security, the relationship has has maintained that level of closeness and trust. I think, unfortunately, and not because of anything going on between the Casa Rosada and the White House, Argentina has suffered from an American first 
trade policy. And so Argentina has essentially lost access to the U.S. market for biodiesel, one of its most important exports. It was able to negotiate a reasonable agreement on steel and aluminum, but still they were quotas and that took a lot of diplomatic energy. Ultimately, Argentina got its lemons in the United States, which was an important and symbolically important export, but it took a very long time. So I think the relationship itself has maintained, but Argentina, you know, in candid private moments would probably say does feel victimized by this trade policy at a moment where Argentina very uncharacteristically, is trying to lead the G20 in a direction of economic opening and, and free trade. Well, Ben, for your sake, I hope uh, Argentina doesn't become a boring, normal country. Yeah. Then you're probably out of a job. You have to be strong. That's right. That's right. For, <laughs> There's always for, Venezuela, though. So you're going to. Here's Venezuela, <laughs> but you're right. Normalcy is boring. Good for its stability and foreign investment, bad for entertaining analysis. Well, uh, Ben, thanks very much for coming back on the show. Uh, I know we'll be talking about Argentina for a, a while longer. Uh, and I hope to have you back. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. 